Jonathan's talk this morning is based on the Bible passage, Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye? when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Now, straight out of the gate, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people can hear a passage like this one and will respond with either anger or with anxiety. Probably some people watching this even now who tragically have been judged in the way that Jesus says here we shouldn't be judged. You're perhaps living with hurt from relationships with other people in the church and it takes every ounce of courage you have even to tune in from the security of your own home. And really I hope that what we're going to be seeing today will help in some way to contribute to healing some of those wounds. And then there are another group of people who are perhaps secretly hoping I do not go soft on judging the kind of liberalism of the day that says, well, everyone's fine to live however they want, as long as it makes them feel happy. And if anyone dares to question how I'm living, then that's the worst kind of bigotry going. Just so you know, my hope is that this message provides a bit of a framework to help you address things that are wrong in a healthy way. Now look, whether or not you fall into either one of those two camps, what we're going to be finding as we dig just a little deeper into these words of Jesus is that actually they are highly relevant for each and every one of us and they have the power to both challenge and liberate us in equal measure. However, before we get into all of this, let's just take a step back and very quickly remind ourselves of the context here. If you remember, Jesus is spelling out what life in his kingdom looks like. He's making it clear that his followers are to live very differently than the world around them. And this comes, I think, into pretty sharp focus in his instructions here on how we're to interact with one another. In short, there is no room whatsoever for being judgmental in any of our relationships. As we began to see last time, that certainly doesn't mean we can't use our discernment and correct things that are wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. We are called to speak into one another's lives, to confront, to challenge, to encourage healthy accountability, to work for change. But always and everywhere out of a desire to see the other person come good, always believing the best, always looking for them to be strengthened and encouraged and built up. But in all of this, we are not called to judge people. We're not to label them based on our assessment of them or their behaviour. If you like, uh, with, with judgment, we are assessing something we see and we're just seeing the fault and condemning it and criticizing it and perhaps even setting out to avenge it. 
But with correction, we start seeing the person behind the fault. Uh, and really, that is the giant distinction here in this passage. Now, uh, as we began to unpack last time, there are in reality all kinds of reasons why perhaps we tend towards being judgmental. It could simply be down to our pride or our arrogance or our self-righteousness. Or it could be because we're insecure or we are jealous of others. It's like when we are secretly unhappy with who we are, although it doesn't really help to tear someone down, we still find ourselves doing it anyway. Or we judge when we're scared. Perhaps we're intimidated or threatened by someone else. You see co-workers doing this all the time, don't you? They, they make fun of their boss behind their back. We also do it when we're lonely. I think there's a way of using negativity to try to connect and bond with other people. The irony is, when you judge someone, you often feel worse about yourself, don't you? This might have something to do with the fact that when you judge someone, it actually affects the whole emotional environment you're in. Not only that, but for the believer, judging others will quench the spirit of God in your life. And I think that is the warning here in this passage. It's very subtle, and that's why it's so incredibly dangerous. And on top of all of that, I suggest when we judge others, actually we are encouraging harsh judgment on ourselves. It's often the case, isn't it, that those who are most judgmental are also incredibly judgmental about themselves. It's like when we are critical of others, we are training ourselves to be self-critical. When we see others as the sum of their failures, then we too will be the sum of our failure. And I think that is why Jesus draws so much attention to this. So all that being said, how do we avoid being judgmental people? Or to put it slightly more positively, how do we create a culture of the kingdom among us that reflects what Jesus had in mind here? Well, I've got four really practical suggestions to get us started. Here's the first one. We have to consciously create a culture of grace and encouragement. The truth is, the culture of your heart will become the culture of your life, and the culture of your life will become the culture of your relationships. You really can't hide it for long. Whatever's in here will flow out and shape what's around you. And if the gospel does its proper work in our hearts, then we will be a people of deep humility, true repentance, authentic love, mercy, and grace towards others. Just have a listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behaviour. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, 
just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Incidentally, it also says in the book of Proverbs that it's to a person's glory to overlook an offence. And so we should be people who, because we're so rooted in the love of God, we just can't help but show grace to others. People are annoying, we just show them grace. People let us down, we just show them grace. People have faults in their lives and we just keep on showing them grace. This is what we're called to do. So, just to try and make this really practical, here are a few questions you can ask yourself in the moment. Here's the first one. Do I really need to say this? Is it going to encourage and lift them up? Will it crush their spirit or empower them? Will it increase their gospel identity? Because don't forget, the goal here is always to build up, never to tear them down. As we saw last time, we're not called to be the accuser. That role has already been taken by the devil. And probably you don't want to be doing his work for him. There are a few more questions. If you're married, how do you speak to your husband or wife? Are you harsh or judgmental with them? They're, they're doing their best. They're, 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 they're trying their hardest and you're just critical the whole time. Well, what's the culture of your home? Is it a culture of judgment or of grace? What about the place where you work? Because Let's face it, God's not glorified by a rotten attitude. It's that passage in Philippians 2 where Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. In other words, the way to stand out in our culture is to keep our mouths shut and not be critical. Why not try it tomorrow? You'll probably find it's harder than you think, or else we'd all just do it naturally, wouldn't we? Be honest. Are you known at your work as an encourager, as a person of grace, or are you known as the moral police who's always coming in to critique others? And then what about in the church here? If you appointed yourself perhaps as the chief corrector of your community group, you feel the need to clarify every nuance of every word spoken. I tell you, this has got all sorts of implications for the kind of communities we create around us. So please, let's do all we can to foster a culture of grace and of encouragement. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Cultivate empathy for people. Just have a listen to these words from Ephesians 4 verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I think the reality is most of the time we just don't know the backstory that people are coming from, do we? There's a particularly poignant story that Stephen Covey tells in his book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There was this one occasion when he got onto a train and he had the luxury of having the whole carriage to himself. 
And then just as the train was about to pull out of the station, the doors open and in pile these noisy kids who are screaming at the tops of their voices, they're climbing on their seats, they're, they're causing quite the commotion. And he gets to the point where he's had enough and he goes up to the guy who seems to be their dad and says, Look, excuse me, but please, could you try and control your kids? The guy looks up, tears in his eyes, and blurts out, so sorry, guess you're right. Just come from the hospital where their mothers died and they're just a bit freaked out. And Stephen Covey describes how in that moment he went from a position of judgment to empathy because suddenly he got a little glimpse into their backstory. Can I just say, most of the time, we are completely and utterly oblivious to the pain, the abuse, the addiction, the suffering, the broken relationships, the heartache that people are living with. And if we just keep making superficial judgments about how people look or their sin patterns that they're desperately trying to overcome or their level of commitment and we pile in with critical words or we just write them off, then we don't resemble the community that Jesus died to create. Let's be honest, it's so hard, isn't it, being a human being and a follower of Jesus in today's world? We live in this broken world and so many of us have been through deeply traumatic and painful experiences. And so we need to do all we can to be available to help and encourage and support and extend love and hope and mercy to the people around us. You know, this recent survey reveals that 9 out of 10 people when asked what they thought of Christianity, they responded with, number one, judgmental, number two, hypocritical. So, if truth be told, we've got a lot to overcome if we're going to be seen as a community of empathy. Here's the third thing. On the occasions when people do sin, we need to restore them gently. This is what it says in Galatians 6 verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Ouch. Now, I just want you to notice that one phrase embedded in this passage. Gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Remember how Jesus uses the metaphor of the eye when he's talking about judging others. He says, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I think it's fair to say that any time you've got something in your eye, 
it's a very delicate exercise to remove it, isn't it? You, you don't go, oh, you've got something in your eye. Come here, I've got a set of pliers that will get it out for you. No, you go, sit still. Don't move. Promise I'm not going to poke you. I, I, I'll be as gentle as I can. And I just want to say is that the human soul is like that. It's incredibly delicate. It's so fragile. We can be so covered with shame that if people just wade in and try to deal with stuff, we're just going to shut down to protect ourselves. We need to be so gentle, so careful. But all that being said, we are to address sin in one another's lives, but in a way that honours them, that gives them dignity, that creates a self-environment for them to be open, in a way that demonstrates grace and always with a motivation of gently restoring them and getting them back on the right path. You know, if you read the Gospels, there is a huge contrast between how people responded to Jesus and how they responded to the Pharisees. There's a huge contrast between a kingdom of grace and forgiveness and a kingdom of moralism and of shame. Perhaps, not surprisingly, every time Jesus shows mercy and compassion, we're drawn to him, aren't we? We can't help but love him more. But there's something about the moralism of the Pharisees that causes us to recoil. And the world recoils too. So we've got to become more like Jesus. Which leads to the fourth and final point. We need discerning engagement. Right at the end of this passage in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Jesus is saying in all of this that there is a time to discern how we interact with others. And the reason we need discernment is that sadly, there are people who don't love grace, that their hearts are hardened and it's this waste of time just trying to interact with them. As Jesus puts it here, they'll simply turn and attack us or trample all over us. I find it interesting. There were times, weren't there, when Jesus would just withdraw, didn't try and force his message on people who weren't interested. So there are times when we have to use discernment and not take what is holy and try to give it to those who are unholy. Now, it's incredibly sad, but there are even followers of Jesus who are so divisive that we're told to warn them once, then a second time, and then have nothing more to do with them. And Paul talks, doesn't he, about those who persist in rampant sexual immorality with hardened and unrepentant hearts. And he says, put them out of the church. So there are times when we need to engage, other times when we have to disengage. But we need to do it carefully. We need to do it in community. We need to do it prayerfully. And we need to exhaust grace, which sadly is often not our natural instinct. Let me close. One final story about Jesus. 
that's found in Luke chapter 7. Let's be honest, we live in a time, don't we, where it's so difficult discerning what's happening in people's lives. It's like the world's gone mad in terms of its ethics, its morality, its standards. So it's often incredibly hard to know what is really happening in the people around us. What Jesus shows us in this story is how to operate with a spirit-infused instinct of grace. You're perhaps familiar with the story. Jesus is having dinner with some religious leaders when completely out of the blue, a woman comes in and approaches him. We're told that she's a woman of ill repute and she falls weeping at Jesus' feet and then dries his feet with her hair. Now, whatever culture you're in, that is an awkward moment. At any time in history, a woman interrupting a formal meal or any meal for that matter to dry your feet with her hair is inappropriate behavior now Simon the Pharisee he responds to all of this by muttering if Jesus really is who he claims to be he would know what sort of woman is touching him and he has a point I mean this isn't the done thing is it but Jesus he overhears the muttering and responds by saying well Simon I, I came into your house and you didn't give me anything for my feet in fact you haven't so much as offered a kind word all the time I've been here and yet this woman hasn't stopped washing my feet so you've got two very different perspectives on the same situation one person through a lens of judgment discerned a wicked person coming near a holy man. But Jesus discerned a valuable and repentant sinner being deeply transformed in his presence. And that's the choice that we are so often presented with. In a confusing culture where people come into the church and they're broken, have all sorts of stuff going on in their life, are we going to be the kind of community that sees the danger and retreats from them out of fear of what could go wrong? Or are we going to be a community that beholds the miracle and the mystery that even though it may not be politically correct or religiously correct or even according to our perfect theology, what's potentially happening in our midst is actually a beautiful life-changing transformation where grace is being extended and the kingdom of God is wonderfully advancing. And so as we seek to try and apply this message we have to discern all the time where grace is at work and where it is we need to embrace it no matter how messy it might be and no matter how much it messes with our preferences and our preconceived ideas. And so, in closing, my prayer is that as a church, we would be known as a community of radical grace, unbelievable kindness and encouragement. And then as we become more and more like Jesus, we would declare the beauty of this Jesus to this city, that many would come to follow him because of our lives together.